We're delighted to welcome you to this session of the 15 Jaipur Literature Festival protected by Detol, Banega Swast India. It's a pleasure to present today, Out of China, how the Chinese ended the era of Western domination. Robert Bickers in conversation with Rana Mittal. Academic and writer Robert Bickers' latest work, Out of China, how the Chinese ended the era of Western domination, masterfully depicts China's 20th century interactions with the outside world, thus unraveling the complex nature of their developing idea of nationalism vis-a-vis -vis their painful encounter with Western imperialism. Interviewing political and cultural history, because intricately lays bare China's internationalized landscapes with all its contradictions, violence, and ambitions. In conversation with academic and writer Rana Mehta, Bicker discusses the nuances of this narrative that form China's outlook of itself and the world at large. Robert Bickers is a historian of modern China and its relationship with the West. He grew up on Royal Air Force bases, studied in London, and has worked at the University of Bristol since 1997. He's currently a professor of history at the University of Bristol and has authored six books, including China Bound, John Swire and Sons, and its world, Out of China, How the Chinese Ended the Era of Western Domination, and Britain in China. Rana Mitter is a professor of the history and politics of modern China at the University of Oxford. His books include China's War with Japan, The Struggle for Survival, 1937 to 1945, and China's Good War, How World War II is Shaping a New Nationalism. Please feel free to send in your comments by typing them into the comment section on your screens. Ladies and gentlemen, Out of China, how the Chinese ended the era of Western domination. Robert Bickers in conversation with Rana Mittal. Hello, and thanks for joining us today. It's great to be part of Virtual Jaipur once again, and let's hope we're all soon rejoining each other in real life. It's also a huge pleasure to be in conversation with one of the most prominent historians of the relationship that China has had with the world, Robert Bickers. And Robert is someone who I've been discussing history with quite some years, so I hope audience will forgive us if there's a certain familiarity in the conversation here, but I hope that might mean that I can ask him a couple of tough questions and he won't feel too offended at various points too. We'll see if that works out. Robert, a huge pleasure to have you here and welcome and congratulations on your book, um, Out of China. It's been very well reviewed in general. You must be pleased by how it's, uh, it's doing out there in the world, even while most of us are still a little bit locked away from the world. Yes, indeed I am. Thank you, Rana, and uh, good evening, everybody. Um, it's, a, it's a delight to be talking uh, about the book again. Um, yes, I mean, I, I, I think it was a necessary book, and I'm pleased with the way uh, it's been received um, and with some of the, the questions, hard and otherwise, that it has had. Um, so I'm, I'm interested to discuss it further and to hear what you've got to say. Absolutely. So very broadly speaking, Out of China, and of course the subtitle, How the Chinese Ended the Era of Western Domination, is a story that stretches across the 20th century. It's very much about the various ways in which, as I would put it, China moved from being a country that was weak in global terms, but sought to be strong, to where it is pretty much in the present day, which is a country which is immensely strong, but often acts as if it were weak. Mm. Is that a fair characterization? And could you tell us a little bit more about the trajectory of, of the book so our uh, participants today can get a bit more of a handle on it? Yes, I can. So the book uh, takes up where my uh, previous book, The Scramble for China, um, concluded. And The Scramble for China uh, explored the opening up of China 
um, and its effective subjugation by foreign powers um, in the 19th century. And I finished with the outbreak of the First World War, which came shortly after the, the end of the Qing Dynasty, which had faced this threat, um, which had largely managed it, I argued, um, in ways that, that made uh, the foreign assault on China, and we have to use words like that, uh, there were at least four major wars in the period between 1839 and and 1900 uh, between China, five, China and, and foreign powers. It's, in modern Chinese history, it's almost easy to forget a war, but not in China. Um, but I took the story forward from 1918, largely up to 1997. And this is a contemporary story. China's rise um, and China's perspectives on its past um, play a, a big role in its understanding um, of itself today, as you said, as you said. I mean, what what is the process that 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 happened? I mean, in 1997, the British handed over a colony on Chinese soil, and in fact, it wasn't the last colony on Chinese soil that was returned to Chinese rule. That was in 1919, uh, in 1999, uh, and the Portuguese handover of Macau. But I watched the handover live. On, on BBC TV, and perhaps you did as well, Ron. Um, so a colonial yeah. handover took place when I already um, had this job here at the University of Bristol when I began my teaching. At the, the, start, the start of this process, um, I think we have to understand the position China was in. And one way of understanding it is, is imagining that um, my city here today, Bristol, in 1918 is partly subject to Chinese control. So let's imagine that a mile from my, my office here, there's an island called Spike Island. Imagine that that is actually territory of the Chinese state. And there, there, there's a Chinese consulate there and the consul has, has quite a lot of power. Um, Bristol's British residents are not allowed to live on that island. In fact, from time to time, they're not allowed to cross the bridges which go to that island and then on to, into South Bristol. And these are, this, these are today a major thoroughfare for Bristolians coming to work in the center. But that was the situation in Guangzhou, Canton, in 1918, uh, an equivalent situation. There are, let's imagine, Chinese soldiers on Spike Island. There is a Chinese gunboat uh, in the harbor there, is, there are Chinese companies which control parts of the local economy. There is a Chinese temple uh, that is perhaps uh, just outside my office along there, because uh, all of this, in a sense, is a reversal of, of, of what actually was the case uh, in China. And China's young people, uh, those uh, who looked at this and wished to, to change it were given hope uh, in 1919, uh, by the end of the First World War, and the, uh, the Versailles negotiations to, uh, to construct a new and lasting peace. That this situation, which has, you know, this surreal um, uh, echo in my presentation of Bristol would be reversed. They were disappointed brutally in 1919. 
China's sovereignty, which had been systematically degraded since 1842, was not fully restored. And what my book does is look at how young Chinese and others worked to restore Chinese sovereignty. And I think they did so very successfully. But what we have today is a state which focuses on that national humiliation. Could I jump in there for a second, Robert? You've given us a fascinating kind of panoramic layout of the way in which that very unusual situation with uh, the relationship between the Chinese and Western foreigners in China operated in the early 20th century. But I'm conscious mm. we're here, even if online, even virtually at the Jaipur Literary Festival, and mm. we've got viewers from around the world. Many of them will be from India. And you know, mm. that's, I think, one of the great pleasures of Jaipur, that we, we have such a cosmopolitan audience. And yet, even those who know the history of India under the British Empire, We'll know that it's not quite the story that you're telling there there is a point of difference because in a sense the story of india a city like uh, jaipur or calcutta or bombay um is a place that was under full colonial rule mm. and then of course many of us will know the you know rousing stories of independence gandhi nehru and others who made their way in that journey to freedom in the 20th century but what you're describing is a situation in china which is distinctive in fact a lot of historians particularly marxist historians have used the term semi-colonial because mm. it's sort of colonial and sort of not colonial and it's almost a very unsatisfactory term to describe why in some ways it was difficult for the Chinese because they weren't just fighting one occupier as the, in the, the Indians were fighting the British it was actually a whole variety of different types of forces military legal diplomatic from you know more than a dozen countries at various various points could you sort of delve into that situation a little bit more for us and perhaps in that add the word extraterritoriality hard to say but a word that perhaps aroused anger amongst you know the nationalist middle class chinese almost more than even territorial occupation at that time yes indeed i can um so in my little sketch of, of bristol's alternative history i had one foreign power china Imagine the Chinese city of Tianjin, eight foreign powers with their own zones of control, their own municipal administrations, their own policemen, their own laws with, within that, um, and their own colonial forces within, within that. Uh, British Indian Army troops, uh, uh, young Sikh men recruited into the police force in Tianjin, or Shanghai, or Xiamen. Multiple colonialisms operating in China in different ways. You use the term semi-colonialism, absolutely. China's first great revolutionary leader, Sun Yat-sen, father of the nation as he is, as he is known, um, called it hypo-colonialism. And for Sun Yat-sen, this was a worse situation, a controversial point, uh, than full orthodox colonialism. Why? Because those eight, none of those eight powers had anything remotely resembling a, a moral, and we could talk for hours about this, but a moral obligation to colonial subjects. They didn't, because China was not a colony, as you said. Um, China uh, retained its own government, its own governments, it fractured into civil war and multiple administrations in the 1920s and the 1930s. Um, but it retained sovereignty in so many areas, even where it lost them in other ways. It lost the ability to fully control its own finances, 
It, uh, it lost the ability to control its own customs revenue, to set its own tariffs, uh, to control a key government monopoly like salt. Um, it lost control over railways, which were constructed with foreign money by foreign engineers and owned by, by foreign interests. So for Sun Yat-sen, this was, this was even worse. Extraterritoriality, extrality, as the diplomats uh, used to, to term it, much easier to say, extrality. Too many syllables, right? Too many syllables. Um, uh, but it lends itself to song, actually. There's a lovely Stephen Sondheim song, which involves extraterritoriality. I won't sing it because I can't sing. And it's not a singing matter. Extraterritoriality meant that uh, Britons in China were subject to their own law. There was a British Supreme Court for China. And the same went for uh, Americans and Russians up to 1917, Germans, Austri Austrians, oh, Italians, French, the Japanese. I think that's it. So, in fact, it's not, there are more. So foreign nationals were subject to their, their own legal processes. Um, they might be jailed in a British-owned jail um, halfway up the Yangtze River from the coast. Um, so this, uh, this seemed to, uh, to many Chinese to, be, um, uh, to allow foreigners uh, can't launch to do what they want and get away with it, including murder. Well, could I throw, throw, throw a thought in there? Because you've, I think, sketched out brilliantly the way in which the forces of foreign imperialism made themselves known in China, Britain, France, the US and others. The Americans often like to forget that they were also an imperial power in China, mm -hmm. but, they, uh, but they absolutely were. They, they generally like to, uh, I'm being a bit rude about Americans, it's not true of all of them, but some like to imply that the people who were sort of shooting down uh, workers in the street were all British and the missionaries helping people into, you know, peaceful ways of education were all Americans. And in fact, all sides were involved in, in all aspects of, of that. Absolutely. But, Having sketched out what the imperial presence is, and also I think which is important, why it's different from somewhere like like India, we need to talk a bit more about the resistance. I think because yeah. that's a really important part of your book. And when you you know get part way through it, you suddenly start running into a bunch of people. They're out in the countryside in some cases, rather than in the big cities like Shanghai, and many of them have turned to a system of belief which you know, as we know, became very very important in the early twentieth century, and that was communism. Now we're interested in that story now because today China is ruled by the world's biggest and most powerful communist party which shows no particular sign of being shaken out of office and we've just passed actually we're 101 years on from the foundation of that political party which was founded in, in, in 1921 but you talk about the communist party as amongst other things an expression of resistance to the foreign presence. So, you know, people might think of communism as economic system, and of course it is that too, but it's very much also about pushing back against the foreigners. So how does the story of China's communist revolution fit into the story you've just told us? China was um, integrated into networks of news. People knew what was going on outside of China. Um, uh, they were aware of currents of, of new thought and new development uh, and new resistance to um, existing regimes. Uh, the fall of the Tsarist Empire in 1917 um, 
uh, echoed very loudly uh, around the world. If we think specifically to the Versailles Peace Conference that I talked about and that betrayal, um, and, and that betrayal sparked uh, protest in Beijing, led by- Ron, You might want to just step in for a moment. I think many will know, but not all. What was the, why was China betrayed at the Versailles Treaty, the treaty that ended World War I? What, what did that have to do with, with China and why did China's nationalist leaders and students feel so, so angry about it? What was the cause? China was actually one of the victors in World War I. It ended the war in 1917 on the Allied side. It had been courted by both uh, the German uh, uh, and Austrian uh, empires uh, and by the British and the Americans and the French. It contributed manpower to the Western Front um, uh, and to the Eastern Front, in fact. Tens of thousands of Chinese laborers went to work in labor corps. And of course, um, it contributed supplies and in other ways to the the allied war effort um, it uh, it did so on the on the in the expectation that it would gain and what it would gain would be a reversal of some of its uh, losses to foreign power specifically german loss um, german seizure of territory uh, and influence in shandong province and specifically qingdao where the beer comes from um, and the beer comes from Qingdao because German entrepreneurs established a brewery there and Tsingtao beer is now drunk across the world. But these, this was uh, seized by Japan in 1914 at the beginning of, of the war. So uh, an allied, uh, a member of the, the victorious alliance um, at the peace conference in 1919 uh, uh, expects the defeated powers uh, uh, to be forced to surrender uh, their gains to it. This did not happen. These were handed over to Japan. During the First World War, uh, the Japanese uh, government had pushed its influence um, into Chinese society and into Chinese politics. So in 1919, inspired by Woodrow Wilson's um, uh, 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 sort of um, statements about what the new world would look like. His, his, his 15 points about how his, the, the post-war settlement would be put together. Absolutely. Um, Self-determination of nations. But self-determination of nations did not uh, apply to those who were suffering from the multiple colonialisms that China was suffering from. So when, uh, when this was realised in 1919, um, uh, young Chinese students in Beijing uh, 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 protested violently on the streets of the city uh, in what became known as the May the 4th movement, uh, which spread nationally. It was not the first such uh, nationalistic movement in China, but it became one of the most uh, profound. Now, if, if you have um, embraced the ideals of uh, Woodrow Wilson, if you have embraced um, the, the ideals of European liberalism. Um, in 1919, on May the 4th, you were confronted with um, their betrayal, as many saw it. So liberalism had not saved China and was not going to save China. So for many, they, they looked to uh, an enemy of the new liberal victors uh, in Europe, and that was the Soviet Revolution. 
and that's why the interest in Marxism um, and the uh, the power of the Soviet model starts to develop. So we can see that the, the anger that exists more widely in Chinese society in the yeah. early 20th century, really after World War One, manifested itself in many ways as a desire, not perhaps in all cases literally to throw all foreigners out of China, but to yeah. remove these special privileges that Chinese, uh, sorry, that foreigners had in many parts of, of China itself. And to some extent that echoes the experience that one has in other colonized societies um, around the world at the, uh, at, the same, at the same time. But let's move forward um, a bit. And there's a tremendous amount in, in the book and I'm gonna try and sort of get some of the, the, the highlights here. I would say that there's a sort of step change in your book in the 1930s to the 1940s. And that becomes a very transformative moment for a variety of reasons. But one of them is that essentially the China of that time, and I should remind you know, our, our listeners, that um, viewers, that that is not the communist China of today. You know, Chairman Mao does not get to be in charge of China until 1949. So this is the sort of China that's half forgotten that was before. It was under a leader, then very famous, now somewhat forgotten perhaps, Chiang Kai-shek, a nationalist, a patriot, but fervently anti-communist. And he basically sets about resetting China's um, uh, relationship with the world. Now, if people know anything much about Chiang Kai-shek, maybe they don't in later years today, they perhaps think of him as being somewhat pro-America, you know, the opposite of Chairman Mao, Mao Zedong. But that obscures what I think is an important element of what you write about, Robert, which is that even though he was anti-communist, he was also deeply determined, as was his nationalist party, to remove foreign privilege from China. Can you tell us a bit more about that part of, of the story as it sort of moves us towards the middle of the century and, and more familiar territory perhaps for those of us who know the later period? China's nationalists have um, in many tellings of modern Chinese history uh, been reduced to um, an episode best forgotten. Uh, two decades of, of, of corruption um, and slavish support for the Americans. China's nationalists were nationalists. The Nationalist Party, uh, led by Chiang Kai-shek after the death of Sun Yat-sen, was a revolutionary nationalist party. It came to power uh, uh, through uh, the revolution of 1926 to 27. Uh, it came to power actually through an alliance between uh, the armed forces of the, the, the nationalist um, armies and the Chinese Communist Party. They worked together in a very close alliance until March, uh, April, 1927, when Chiang Kai-shek, still uh, a, a radical anti-imperialist, feared as the red general, a communist, uh, turned on his Chinese Communist Party allies um, and, and bloodily repressed them. Chiang Kai-shek um, uh, Kai hated the British. I mean, if you read his writings or if you read his, uh, his diaries for, for this, this period in the, the early 1920s, um, there are some lengthy rants about you know, killing the British, destroying the British, fighting could, the British. Could I, could I add a, a, a gem from that particular um, repertoire as well, Robert? I, I've read his diaries more for the 1940s, the World War II years, and one of the statements I like is that, um, or rather I find very uh, um, kind of engaging, is at one point in his diary, Chiang Kai-shek says, I despise the British, but I also admire them. And the reasoning for that was that he thought that they were the most cunning of any of the imperial powers, managing to persuade large numbers of people around the world somehow 
to do what they said. And I think he rather envied them for having that quality because I think he wanted to work it out himself as a leader who ruled China for a quarter of a century, but never really quite got on top of it. Well, uh, yes, yes, indeed. Um, uh, the British were uh, the most powerful of um, Chang's enemies um, until, as it were, until the, uh, the 1930s. Uh, the British presence in China was the most pervasive um, and uh, the most, uh, and, and Britain's uh, one way or another in British interests had the greatest amount of control over the Chinese economy. Uh, for example, until the Japanese invasions of the 1930s. But Chiang Kai-shek was always a nationalist. Um, and uh, his regime uh, came to power on the crest of this revolutionary um, wave um, across rural China and, and urban China. But then pretty quickly hit up against the, the realities of financing a government of negotiating diplomacy, of, of negotiating uh, an increasingly powerful Japanese threat. And the, the, the new regime, um, when it came to power, um, formally established itself in, in 1927, 1928, uh, uh, proclaimed that it would bring to an end extraterritoriality, that it would seize back all of these concessions uh, in Shanghai, the heart of, of Shanghai, China's most important city, industrially, economically, financially, educationally, in so many ways, uh, was run by 12 men with names like Vickers or Smith or Keswick or, or Jones. Um, and, um, but at, even as it did that, and even as they secured some gains, I mean, they managed to bully the Belgians out of their little concession in, in Tianjin, um, the Japanese threat got more urgent, and Chiang Kai-shek's uh, and his movements anti-imperialism had to be put on hold to deal with the Japanese seizure of large parts of the country uh, in the north uh, east of China in 1931-32, and then increasingly uh, in East China. So Chiang Kai-shek had to put his revolution on hold. But as you said, even in the 1940s, he never lost sight of the fact that the British and other potential allies to, uh, to combat the Japanese uh, assault on China uh, were also um, uh, fair weather friends, useful friends, useful uh, until the time came when China could re-energize uh, re its, its wider nationalist uh, agenda. So we have a picture there, I think, Robert, uh, and again, those who'd like to know more, I think highly recommend that they should get a copy of Out of China, I think available in all good bookstores and even some possibly dodgy ones as well. Absolutely. Online, of course, as, uh, as well. Um, that takes us through this very turbulent mid 20th century. Um, so we have the, the rise of nationalism in the 1920s and 30s. We have the rise of communism as people react to not only the presence of foreigners in China, but also economic injustice, which is you know very, very prevalent at that time. And again, making that comparison for our purposes here with India, it's interesting that communism does take off in a significant way in China 
in a way, it doesn't quite in India during this period. It's a sort of different mm. sort of nationalist tradition. There is, of course, a long-standing and important Communist Party of India, both then and now, but it wasn't dominant in the way that, of course, it came to be in, mm. in China. And the Second World War also provides a real turning point in China. Again, different experience from India. India very much involved in the Second World War, not least sending thousands and thousands of troops as uh, part of the empire effort. But also, of course, uh, through Shubhas Chandra Bose, um, a presence through the Indian National Army uh, on the Japanese side. But China itself, of course, was a battlefield in the way that India wasn't. Um, and that, of course, essentially devastates the country. It also provides circumstances in which eventually the communists, by then led by a man named Mao Zedong, became famous to the world as, as Chairman Mao, conquers China. And that happens in 1949. There's a civil war in which Mao takes over China. He announces from the gate of heavenly peace, the front of the forbidden city in Beijing, that, the, well, he doesn't say it there, but he says elsewhere uh, that the Chinese people have stood up uh, in front of the gate of heavenly peace. He just announces that the PRC, People's Republic of China, has been founded. So that takes us on into the sort of culmination point, almost. These efforts to try and get rid of the foreign presence in China have succeeded. There are very few foreigners in China when Mao's mm. in power during the time of communism. But even that doesn't seem to be enough to stem or end this really sort of strong fixation that China's communist leaders in particular have about throwing out not just foreigners, but foreign influence. And I think that culminates, you know, several couple of decades later in the Cultural Revolution of the 1960s. And again, many people might know a bit about this, this sort of almost internal civil war where Chairman Mao set the Communist Party against itself. And, you know, young teenagers were dressed up as so-called red guards in military uniforms, bullying and attacking their teachers and uh, experts in the system to sort of force them to commit, uh, to confess their revolutionary sins. And the reason I bring this up is the experience of one person you write about in uh, the book, um, a woman named Nian Cheng, is a very good example of what happened to at least some Chinese who had stayed in China after the Communist Revolution, you know, very much working with the system. But because of their foreign connections, because of connections, in fact, to the British, found themselves at the end of a very, very painful set of experiences. Could, could you tell us a bit about Nian Cheng and what her experience tells us more broadly about this period uh, once the communists had taken over? Sure. Yes, indeed. And I'm glad you mentioned Nian Cheng. She's, um, it's a fascinating uh, story. Nian Cheng studied um, in this country, in, in Britain, uh, at the uh, London School of Economics and uh, arrived, I think it was in 1936, um, was very involved in uh, efforts uh, amongst Chinese students uh, and others in this country after the Japanese invasion entered its fullest phase uh, in mid-1937 to raise awareness of this hideous conflict that was uh, unfolding uh, on the other side of the world um, to try and persuade uh, uh, the British to act, to intervene, or British consumers to boycott Japanese goods uh, and so on. Um, and Nian Chung was at the heart of this sort of activity in this country. She stomped around Britain. She came to Bristol. She, in fact, she came to my university and spoke at, at a meeting here. Uh, she would go anywhere. She went to county fairs uh, where um, on, on, and, um, and crowned the May Queen in one in Wiltshire. 
uh, to try and get the message across to, to British audiences. She uh, married a, a, a fellow student who became uh, a, a member of, of the, the nationalist government's foreign service. Uh, they spent part of the war years, uh, the rest of the war years uh, in Australia. Uh, and in fact, her daughter was the first Chinese uh, child born um, in, uh, in Australia's capital territory. And returned to China at the end of the war, and he secured a job um, in the foreign sort of affairs department in Shanghai. Nian Chung was an Anglophile. She spoke fluent English. She liked red wine. Um, she listened to classical European classical music. Uh, she had toast for breakfast with butter and jam. She was a cosmopolitan and she was an, a nationalist activist. She uh, was asked to take um, a role as a liaison between uh, the British company Shell uh, and the Chinese interests, which were working to take over its assets in China after the, uh, the coming to power of the Chinese Communist Party. She had all the skills. She socialized with, uh, with, with the British in, in her circle of friends still remaining in Shanghai. Uh, she served the, the revolution and, and the new state's um, uh, nationalistic uh, agenda by helping dismantle this foreign company. She had served China's interests more widely in raising international um, uh, uh, sort of awareness of, of, of the assault on China. But in 1966, her home was attacked by Red Guards. She was a key, a classic target for this iconoclastic, xenophobic uh, anti-imperialism of these young Chinese revolutionaries. And I would call it xenophobic. Well, could you, could um, you just run into that a little bit more, um, Robert? Because as we've been saying, you know, China, Mm, yeah. It's taken over by Mao and by the communists in 1949. There are very few foreigners. There are some, you know, a lot of Soviets, perhaps in the first decade or so, up to the 19, early 1960s, and then Mao and the Soviets fall out. And there are just very few foreigners in China by the mid-1960s. So why should foreign presence be almost more of an issue for the Chinese government at the time when there were no foreigners in China, as opposed to at the time which you were telling us about you know, 10, 15 minutes ago, when there were thousands of foreigners. In yes, indeed. But there are, there are very few foreigners, but there are lots of Nianchangs. There are lots of men and women like her. Uh, there are lots of men and women um, who, uh, who grew up in that more cosmopolitan uh, uh, world that had, uh, of course, persisted. Um, the world, um, in, you know, which listened to jazz in Chinese built hotels, which went to Hollywood films in the, the cinemas in Shanghai. Um, you can, you know, getting rid of the, the formal Western presence is one thing. Uh, clearing China uh, from the, uh, the pervasive corruption of Western thinking, of Western culture was another, and this was the target. Uh, there. It wasn't just Nian Chung, it was everything that she surrounded herself with, um, as it were, in her own home, in her connections, the fact that she, she spoke English, she'd studied overseas, um, that um, 
it's it's about wiping the slate clean completely. This was um, it was about uh, the the Cultural Revolution and the energies of the Red Guards were uh, were aimed at uh, restoring China's dignity from um, uh, from a, uh, as they saw it from a position of semi-slavery to foreign ways of thinking, uh, which were um, un-Chinese and against uh, the revolution. So let, let me let me dive in there, uh, uh, mm. Robert. Uh, we've got about you know, 10 minutes left. And although there's a tremendous amount more in, in, in the book that covers you know, the 60s and through to the 80s and 90s, and of course, 1997 is the formal endpoint of the book, the handover of Hong Kong. But rather than just talk about the history, I'd like to spend the last few minutes, if I may, talking a bit about what it all means now. And of course, the handover of Hong Kong happened in 1997. I think we've said before, you and I both watched it live, I think, on, on television. But in fact, in some ways, the aftermath of that handover has only really come to a culmination in the last few years, where Hong Kong has changed very, very considerably, not least with the imposition two years ago now, nearly, of the national security law, which has heavily clamped down on many of the freedoms, particularly freedom of media, that had existed up to that point in um, Hong Kong. The question I have for you is the phenomenon that you're looking at in the book, the way in which fear, anger, resentment of foreigners, which is by no means the only feeling that Chinese have for mm. foreigners, they also have admiration, they have reverence, they have respect, they have friendship as well, but in many cases the fear and the anger have been very real as well. How far is that a factor in the way in which today's China is looking at the world? Because today's China is very different from the one that starts your book. It's only, in historical terms, a tiny amount of time, just a century, which is nothing. But at the beginning of the 20th century, China was weak. It was very heavily compromised in its sovereignty by the imperial powers. Um, it was not a country that could shape its own destiny very easily. Today, China is the second biggest economy in the world, second biggest military in the world, um, has a very scratchy relationship with its neighbors, including India, of course, uh, amongst those uh, amongst those neighbors. Um, China these days can tell the world a great deal about what it China wants, and the world quite often has to say, yep, mm. that's what we're going to do. How far is today's China really an inheritor of the China in your book, which seems much weaker and much less effective global player at the beginning of your story? Uh, we might look at China today um, in pre-COVID times, um, and 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 and, uh, and I've done it myself in talks before. I've you know got a ride in Shanghai and said, "Look, it looks the same. There's so much going on here which resonates and whatever." Um, but but as you say, this uh, this power uh, is coupled with uh, a sense of the uh the legacies of the past and the dangers of the past as well you ask about hong kong uh one might think uh that one way of looking at it is that uh, hong kong is full of millions of mian chans a million people demonstrated in the largest of the demonstrations in, in, in 2019 a million people whose ways of thinking uh conflict very sharply uh, more and more sharply since 2019 with those of um of of the the people's republic of china uh, and of course hong kong is part of the people's republic of china so uh, we um uh part of you know hong kong played a 
a fascinating role in the, the re-energizing of China after the 1970s. It was the gateway to China. It was uh, Hong Kong's entrepreneurs, Hong Kong finance, uh, uh, and, and so on, which helped restart, uh, re-globalize China uh, in the 70s, 80s, uh, and 90s. It had a profound impact on, on China. And perhaps one, one might think, uh, one might understand it as that there is still a fear that Hong Kong can continue to have a profound impact on China because of its different uh, culture uh, and its, its different understandings uh, of, of what it means to be Chinese today, which is, which is shaped by um, what, uh, 150 years of a different course, a different legal system, different language, um, different cultural connections globally. Well, Robert, how far do you, how far would you share a view which is being heard more and more in news media these days, which is that because of the national security law, because of the shutting down of many of the freedoms that Hong Kong had had, you know, for nearly 25 years since the handover, pretty much identical for much of that time to what they were um, mm. under, the, uh, under the British, relatively little democracy, but lots of freedom of expression, mm. um, that essentially now Hong Kong is becoming, quotes, just another city like the mainland, just like Shanghai, um, just like Beijing. Is that fair or is that too simple? I think it's too simple. Um, and I, in fact, Nian Chung's story, 20 years after the, uh, the establishment of the People's Republic of China, just shows us how long lasting the impact of that old Shanghai was. And in fact, Shanghai's culture um, and uh, its strengths when it entered the 1980s, uh, very much linked to that longer term history of the fact that Shanghai was a, an open uh, city uh, and had been for so much longer. Um, you know, when, um, when negotiations started between the, the British and the Chinese authorities, the British would, would raise uh, the, the point about uh, Hong Kong public opinion and what might Hong Kong people think of this and uh, at one point and there's a, a, a wonderful exchange where one of the leading negotiators on the Chinese side says we're Chinese they're Chinese we know what they think you don't need to tell us but of course that view of we know what they think uh, was was based on profound ignorance of what Hong Kong people actually think and the, uh, and the nature of Hong Kong society and its, its resilience since then. I mean, China's, one of China's biggest worries um, has been uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the rapid collapse of the Soviet Union uh, in 1990, um, 91. Um, and history plays, uh, in Chinese analysis, history plays a large part of that. Nationalism plays a large part of that, but also history, allowing what it calls historical nihilism. Uh, allowing the, the critical examination of the Chinese past. Um, uh, and this happened in the Soviet Union. Uh, and, um, but if you allow, if, if, if you permit historians to do their business as they normally do, um, uh, that can be weaponized. It, uh, the history of the Chinese Communist Party and its rule in China is the history of uh, tens of millions of unnecessary deaths, um, at least one and a half million people killed during the Cultural Revolution, uh, the 20th century's single uh, most uh, uh, dreadful famine, uh, 
uh, caused by uh, uh, Communist Party uh, policies in the late 1950s. Um, it's not a fabulous history. It's a history best controlled and shaped uh, and, um, and expunged as far as possible. And that's what uh, Chinese Communist Party's leaders have been doing. So it's a reminder in some senses that the complexity of history is mm. one of the things that's often hard to discuss in China today. And yet, paradoxically, if it weren't for the fact that actually an awful lot of our colleagues who've been there well are still you know, very, very assiduously and sometimes bravely oh, writing yeah. some really important history in China, we in the wider world, whether it's in India or in Britain or in the United States, would not, I think, have the fuller picture that we do today of what's going on in China. So it's a complex situation. Absolutely. Robert, you and I could um, go on talking about this for quite some time, but unfortunately time is against us. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today. It's been a pleasure to be part of the 2022 uh, Jaipur Festival online and very much hope that we'll all see each other again in real life one of these days, one of these years. Thanks very much, Robert. Indeed. Thank you very much. Everybody. Thank you, Robert Vickers and Rana Mitter for this fantastic conversation. Thank you all for watching and being such a great audience. Please stay locked on to continue to watch with us the series of exciting sessions featuring a stellar list of speakers that have been specially curated for you. Sessions are ongoing across all three of our venues, Front Lawn, Mughal Tent and Darbar Hall. Stay tuned for the next session.